0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashley Nasiri, and today we are joined by Dr. Garrett Choby and Ms. Jill Nagel to discuss U.S. News and World Report hospital rankings. Dr. Choby and Ms. Nagel, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, Ashley. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guests. Dr. Choby is a fellowship-trained rhinologist who also serves as the Chair of Quality for the Department of Otolaryngology at a tertiary academic center. Ms. Nagel serves as the Vice Chair of Quality for the Mayo Clinic Enterprise, and today they join us to shed some light on the role of U.S. News and World Report hospital rankings in hospital strategy and success, and how individuals, departments, and hospital systems can work together to influence these rankings. Dr. Choby, let's start with the basics. Can you broadly describe what the U.S. News and World Report rankings are and why these specific rankings play such an important role in the reputation of a hospital?
1: Absolutely, Ashley, and thanks for uh, bringing this topic up. I think it's a really important one that a lot of folks have interest in. There's a lot of uh, sort of mystery into what goes into making the SAW. So hopefully today we can give you a little bit of insights into, into what that is. So this is a program that's, of course, from the U.S. News and World Report. As you are probably aware, they have a number of different ranking systems. They rank colleges and universities and states and other health aspects, even such things as diets. But this ranking of hospitals falls under their health category. This began in 1990, so it's been around for this point in time about 30 years. And it's really uh, a metric or, or a conglomeration of quality metrics of inpatient hospital care for Medicare and Medicaid payers. So this is a ranking system that is developed again, mostly on government-paying patients who have inpatient hospitalizations. And they try to take into account a number of things. So things as far as quality measures, um, patient input, and a variety of things, which we'll get into later. And this is really seen by many patients as sort of the gold standard for ranking the quality of a hospital. So it does tend to drive a fair bit of patient traffic. And there's an interest both from folks in the medical community as well as patients seeking care.
2: Ms. Nagel, what other ranking systems exist and how are these different? I'm glad you asked because it can be really interesting to look across different ranking systems and compare them. I'll highlight just a couple. CMS publishes an assessment of hospital quality and their hospital compare report using stars to rank hospitals with up to five stars. This system includes quality metrics that are not, for example, included in US News and World Report ranking. Hospital compare quality measures are things like survival of patients with sepsis, complications from hip and knee surgery, healthcare associated infections, and readmissions for patients with specific conditions like heart failure, COPD, and pneumonia, just to name a few. An entirely different and separate ranking system is through the LeapFrog group. LeapFrog is a nonprofit organization that advocates for transparency in healthcare. LeapFrog publishes a hospital safety grade biannually. This, too, has some of the same and some different measures than the rankings and rating systems of U.S. News and CMS.
0: So when we're talking about the U.S. News and World Report rankings, how does the process of hospital evaluation pan out? How long is each cycle, and are the ratings reflective of the most recent hospital
2: information, or is there a lag? This is fun to explore because there is sometimes a very frustrating lag. So let me go through some of the details about U.S. News and World Report. They refresh their information at least annually, but some cycle links vary. LeapFrog, for example, publishes a letter grade for hospitals twice each year. U.S. News & World Report obtains the hospital-specific information from variable sources in part from the AHA survey that most hospitals complete. We call that information garnered from the survey the structural measures. Additionally, they obtain information from CMS in the form of Medicare claims that the hospital has filed on behalf of patients. The data source lends to quality and outcomes data based on hospital inpatients that use CMS as a payer only. With U.S. News & World Report's annual evaluation, the data periods vary among the components scored, with the CMS claims information lagging significantly behind real-time. For example, the rankings published in July 2020 used hospital claims from January 2016 through year-end 2018. The structural measures from the AHA survey and patient experience measures were from the year 2018, and the reputation was a composite of three years of data, 2018, 19, and 2020. So there's clearly several sources
0: that this data is obtained from, but what specific factors go into determining U.S. News and World Report rankings, and are different factors weighed differently?
1: So this is a really important aspect to think about and to understand. There are a number of factors that I'll go through, and each of them, as you mentioned, is ranked or sort of weighted differently for the score. The first one is something that, as a department, we don't necessarily have a lot of control over. And That's about 30% of the score. And this is really influenced by things like nursing staffing ratios, magnet recognition of the hospital, NCI cancer center recognition, and volume of surgery. So all those things, amongst others, go into this 30% score, which is important, but again, not necessarily influenced a ton by the individual department. The biggest chunk of the score is 37.5%. And of that, 30% is for 30-day mortality, and 7.5% is for discharge-to-home criteria. Both of those are scored on an observed-to-expected ratio. So the idea is that you shouldn't be penalized by seeing sicker and more complex patients. So, that should be taken into account in your expected mortality and your expected discharge to home. Then, of course, your observed or what actually happened in your hospital also plays a role in that ratio. So, that's the biggest chunk at 37.5%. About 5% of the score is from the HCAPS information they get from patients. HCAPS, and I'll, and I'll go through that a little bit, is an acronym. And it's from the CMS again, and it stands for the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. So if I didn't hear a better uh, government uh, mnemonic than that, I I think we have the the winner for the day. This is really a survey goes to patients on 29 questions, very akin to Press Ganey surveys that we're probably all quite familiar with. That's done by a separate private company for all insurers. This HCAP score, though, is specifically for CMS payers, and that's what's taken into account for these particular U.S. news and world report rankings. And again, that's 5% of the overall score. The last chunk of the score is the, quote, reputation with specialists. And that's 27.5% of the last bit. This is a little bit confusing, but in recent years, it's gone at least partially to the Doximity surveys. And that's why everyone in their department is very pushed to uh, sign up for Doximity and participate in the rankings. However, there are also a component of it as well that's not Doximity in nature. And Jill, I know you have a lot of good background on this. Maybe you help fill in some of the gaps with how these reputation scores are actually formulated for individual programs and hospitals.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. The reputation score is, as you said, based on both Doximity and also another voting mechanism, which is a good old-fashioned paper mail-out voting. The reputation score is about two-thirds from the Doximity votes and one-third from those mail-out votings. Eligible voters are M.D.s who are board certified in the specific specialties ranked in U.S. News and World Report. M.D.s are asked to list the top five hospitals in their specialty that they would refer patients to if geography was not a factor. We have seen over the last several years a decline in most all hospitals' reputation scores as more hospitals are recognized for excellence and garnering votes from their colleagues. The votes are just spread more thinly throughout the country's hospitals. So, Dr. Chobi, we started to get into a little bit of
0: what we can influence as a department and what we can influence as providers, but what factors cannot necessarily be influenced by the hospital and specific individuals that work in that hospital?
1: Yeah, great question. This gets back a little bit to the methodology again. When we typically think about sort of improving or focusing on our own department rankings, there are certain things we do have control over to a certain extent, and there's other things that are much larger than any individual department. Again, those larger factor things are things like hospital magnet recognition, NCI cancer center designation, volume of care, and those kind of things. Those things, although can be influenced a little bit, are largely outside the control of an individual person or a department. When we talk about areas to focus in as a department or as a group, The most common things we look at are improving our mortality, discharge to home, and reputation with specialists. HCAPs can also be influenced by giving good care, but that one's, again, less directly alterable by ourselves. When we talk about things like mortality, for instance, this is one that's often targeted, again, because it's an observed to expected ratio. What we found throughout the years looking at uh, data from our hospital and many other hospitals is that many hospitals have very similar observed mortality for that particular department. However, what alters significantly is the expected mortality that's generated. And that really gets back to proper documentation of patient comorbidities and their actual diagnoses. I can perhaps give a few specific examples. In the world of otolaryngology, many of our inpatients are folks who are getting complex head and neck surgery. So for those patients, if things are documented well, many have other issues like smoking or drinking or high blood pressure, complex tumors, and perhaps disease that's spread to the neck and elsewhere. There are a few in particular diagnoses that are well known to significantly increase your expected mortality. Those things in particular are things like a malignancy diagnosis, a diagnosis of spread of cancer elsewhere. For instance, if there's spread to the neck, that would be considered metastatic disease amongst diagnosis groups. And another one is significant weight loss. And as you can imagine, many of our head and neck cancer patients have all three of those, but you'd be surprised at how rarely those things are actually documented. And that's what really can alter your observed to expected mortality. The other one I'll mention briefly is the reputation with specialists. I think at this juncture, every department in the country has some you know, program where they're asking their alumni to sign up for Doximity and vote for their own department. In some situations, I've even heard that departments will ask them not to vote for anyone else but their own department, and that probably uh, has to do a little bit with the overall declining scores of everybody, as, as Jill mentioned earlier. But again, that is a way that uh, is sort of done commonly now as these Doximity rankings for reputation. But how do you influence reputation? To be quite honest, it's largely through research, publication, presentation at meetings, and then having a good patient experience of excellent care in your group. And I think Joe may have mentioned earlier, it's also interesting that these can be regionally influenced. So it's very common that people who are surveyed in your own region will rank you much more highly than those outside your region. That's likely because they're not referring to you quite as much because they're from a good distance away. But I think that when you talk about influencing things, the most commonly we focus on are observed to expected, especially mortality, but also discharge to home, and then of course the reputation rankings.
0: I'm glad you touched upon the observed to expected ratio, the O to E ratio, as this is something that's become more prevalent in discussions about um, hospital rankings in recent years. Ms. Nagel, when we think about how we can work as a hospital to improve a hospital rating, what is the strategy behind doing something like that?
2: You know, honestly, at Mayo Clinic and I believe at all hospitals, the primary strategy is to focus on the needs of the patients the hospital cares for and to support the staff who are providing the care. In a sense, if we do our very best for every patient and document it well, the writings will take care of themselves. That being said, we do analyze all components of the metrics to understand where there are opportunities for improvement, and we activate improvement projects accordingly. Frequently, improvement includes a component of documentation. So I'm glad Dr. Choby touched on that, and I wanna underscore that a little bit. Quality metrics are level set through risk adjustment models that create an expected event rate based on the comorbidities and the complexities of the patient in the hospital's cohort. When the documentation is not thorough, the complexity of the patients is not reflected sufficiently in the claim to risk adjust the patient accordingly. Good documentation, we believe, does more than offer adequate risk adjustment for quality measures. Thorough documentation drives safe patient care by contributing to risk assessments that flag the patient for specific care pathways and interventions that mitigate risk. Many of our improvement projects support documentation accuracy for all of those reasons. So for our listeners who are
0: either physicians or involved in providing care for patients, how can they, uh, as individuals or even as departments, work to influence these ratings? And specifically, what factors can we directly influence as providers? And how do we do that?
1: I think it, again, comes down to the baseline factor is providing excellent care to your patients. That's going to do things like improve your reputation with their family and their friends, which is important for this as well as they're gonna talk to their referring physicians. I had great care, they had a really good experience, and that's gonna influence your reputation as well. Other things to think about when you are doing things like operating a patient or admitting the hospital, as Jill mentioned earlier, documenting all their comorbidities and the exact details of their reason for their clinical care is very important. And I also mentioned a nuance to this, which is a little bit difficult to understand sometimes, at least for myself but most of these are designated based on what's called a DRG. That's really important to know because although these rankings are for your own individual department, many of these DRGs that fall under your department's purview may actually be admissions to other departments. So for instance, when we look at the DRGs that came under our department's purview for the last ranking cycle, only 62% of them were admitted to the otolaryngology service. That's really important to understand because we take care of a lot of patients who may be admitted to other services, and you don't have direct control or influence over all aspects of their hospitalization. But the DRG may fall to your department because perhaps you did a procedure on that patient which had the highest billing amount and got designated as the DRG for that encounter of care. So things you can directly influence, again, are your documentation, your reputation, and how well you provide care. But also realize that if you really want to do sort of a full house sweep clean of this, You know, also focus on what is actually coming in as your things that are influencing your rankings and realize that maybe a third or even almost half of things are not actually being admitted to your department that are taken into account for these rankings.
2: Those are really good points. And I wanted to add something about the reputation. When we see so many referrals at our hospital, it's important to maintain that reputation with the referring provider. So warm touchbacks to call referring providers, let them know how things are going with their patients, and handing off the patient back to them with a good plan of care and good communication can go a long way toward driving additional referrals and bringing your hospital to mind when they're voting in that proximity pool.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's a really good point, I agree.
2: So what are some of the important changes in the ways
0: that rankings have been determined that have occurred in recent years, and how has that impacted
2: hospitals differently? Changes are always happening, and we never know beforehand, for example, when they might change something. An impactful change with U.S. News & World Report rankings has been an emphasis on patient volumes. The average bed size for the top 20 hospitals they ranked was 953 beds. The way the points are awarded for quality measures like mortality index, for example, creates an advantage for hospitals of a large size. An additional fairly recent change in US News and World Report rankings was the inclusion of that metric that Dr. Choby mentioned, discharge to home. That's not a measure that many hospitals routinely monitor. Where a patient is discharged from, the hospital too, is dependent on a large number of variables. When measures that are used for rankings come out new, a hospital really does have to assess the relevance of that measure for their patient population prior to setting out a course to influence the performance on that measure. I think that's the important take-home message as hospitals are going to continue to do what's important for their patients, even though various measures evolve through ranking
1: systems. Joe, can I ask you another follow-up question that I, I think is I find confusing sometimes? With us, a metric like discharge to home, perhaps it's best for a patient to go to a skilled nursing facility for a little while before they go home. Maybe they're a complex patient who's had a big surgery; those kind of things. So, how are those aspects taken into account with with these metrics?
2: that's been a point of a lot of conversation, particularly around that measure, and why I want to make sure we have it clear that we want to make sure we do what's best for the patient and not what's best for the measure. One thing, though, that I've heard um, some great conversation around was readiness for hospitalization. How are we preparing our patients in the ambulatory setting and in the pre-surgical phases to be habilitated enough to get a good discharge to home? So if for those elective surgeries and for patients that are part of our primary care system, we are doing all the right things in managing their comorbidities and preparing them for surgeries that they're going to have, then we'll, we'll be doing the right thing for the patient and able to bend that measure.
0: That's an excellent point, and I think it's good to take a step back and, again, focus on the patient. When there are changes in how the rankings are determined, presumably hospitals don't know that those changes are being made. And so is there typically a lag um, or a drop in scores and then hospitals catch up, or how does that
2: play out? There definitely can be. There can be some real surprise there, and it can be a bit of a game changer when the rankings come out. And that is you know, one of the reasons ranking systems want to add new things is because eventually there's a regression to the mean and there's a best case scenario, best performance across all hospitals. So they need to continue to challenge us to do better for our patients. And that's part of what bringing new measures on board is all about.
0: Does this specific ranking system have any inherent biases that favor specific hospitals or specific hospital types or practices?
2: Absolutely. All ranking systems really are. There are um, several things about the hospital that can weigh into the performance that creates biases in a ranking system. As mentioned previously, depending on how quality scores are assessed and points attributed, the size of the hospital can play a really large factor. Additionally, the scope of the hospital and overall services offered at the hospital creates variation that comes through as bias. For example, a specialty care center has a different overarching patient population in their data. These are patients who perhaps planned for their surgery, had pre-surgical optimization of their comorbid conditions, and so forth. On the other hand, a hospital that serves a community population has a mix of elective surgical patients and community patients who were admitted emergently through the ED and may come to the hospital without their other conditions optimized. The challenges across those two very different hospital types are different, and it's difficult to assure a ranking system can really adjust for those variables. Okay, so
0: let's say the ranking system has made a change in how they determine scores for hospitals, and we've identified some points of improvement and have made some changes in how we either report or document something like expected out of the O to E ratio. How quickly can we expect to see a change in our ratings after we've implemented those changes?
1: Yeah, it's really an excellent question, something something to think about. It can be a bit frustrating because you make a change and, you know, next year comes by and you don't see anything different. But uh, for many of the things we do, it probably takes about an average of two years for that to be reflected. Now, as Jill mentioned earlier, there are nuances to that. So some aspects may be from a year or two prior, whereas other ones may be a conglomeration of perhaps three years of data put together. But I would say across the board, and Joe, feel free to, to chime in as well, if you change something in clinical care with, for instance, documentation, I would estimate about two-ish years lag time before it comes into play, whereas reputation, it seems, maybe closer to a one-year-ish lag time uh, as far as the doximity and the, and the reputation scores go.
2: And keeping in mind that a lot of these scores roll together three years for the score. So when your most recent year has a really great performance, it is diluted out a little bit by the scores prior to you implementing that change. That's why we really like to give our clinicians leading indicators and the most recent data we can. While it's difficult to benchmark, if they're showing continuous improvement internally, we encourage them that that will pay out in the end.
0: I think that was an incredibly helpful uh, conversation, um, especially for me uh, as someone who's still in training and learning how these things work. Um, For our listeners, what resources do you recommend for those who
2: want to learn more about this topic? There's always the opportunity to review the websites and the available information online for any ranking or rating system. However, seeking out the coding and documentation support at your facility really is very important. Also working together with your hospital's quality office can bring great insights and draw on subject matter expertise on these topics that you may have never realized exists.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I'll, I'll add a few things, You know, just from the otolaryngology side of things, in my current role in our department, it's been eye-opening to work with folks like Jill in our, in our quality office. They have such a deep understanding of these metrics and processes and in real life implications of patient care as well. So it's really been insightful to meet with them regularly and see those things. And I'll also mention we, we and many other hospitals as well have a clinical documentation improvement group. And they're really the experts in how to go about documenting things. And it seems a little bit daunting at first. When you meet with them, they, they have really good insights into both your department as well as other departments in general. and can offer really tremendous you know, detailed insights and things you can adjust, which have a really big role in both patient care as well as documentation.
0: Well, Dr. Chobie and Ms. Nagel, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.